Well, let me just let me get started with a passage of scripture. I'm not going to preach tonight. Pastor Mark told me not to preach, but telling a pastor not to preach is like, well, yeah, it's not happening. Philippians chapter three, verse ten through fourteen. You don't have to turn there. You can join me if you want. And I promise I will not preach, but this is the beginning of my testimony. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, reading down through verse 14, it says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. As Pastor said, I, my name is Les Chemist. I was born at a very young age. <laughs> You'll get it. You'll get it. I was born in a little place called Lockport, Nova Scotia. How many of you know where Lockport is? Mark's been there. My kids have been there. Uh, I was born in that small town. When I was growing up, there was about a 1,000 people there. Now there's about 650 people there. Um, needless to say, when I come to places like Mississauga, I am overwhelmed. <laughs> okay? um, I am a small town boy. And that's where I function, and that's what God has called me to. Uh, I honestly, I commend, brother, your, your ability to work in a big city. I could not do that. There are too many people here. <laughs> there are too many cars. <laughs> the buildings are too tall. There's not enough trees. And I don't have room enough to stretch. <laughs> I am a small town boy. I was born into a Christian home. My parents were godly parents. Uh, took me to church from the time I was born. To an independent Baptist church. I was, I was raised in that church. Saw many heartaches and struggles, but many blessings. It was in that church that I learned my need of salvation. I did not get saved at the church, though. I remember when I was just a five-year-old boy, my mom used to read us Bible stories individually before we went to bed. She didn't read to us. Uh, I had two two sisters at the time. I ended up with another brother later on. Uh, but he was an afterthought, we say. Uh, <laughs> I say it was an accident, but anyway. <laughs> um, you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, uh, my mom would read Bible stories to us. And she would make sure she read my sister and then me individually. My mom has very little education. My mom was raised in rural Newfoundland until she was 13 years old. Did not have the privileges of uh, a lot of education. Uh, I don't say this disrespectfully. It's just a simple lady. And I don't mean simple. I mean just a simple lady. And I said to my mom one night as she was reading Bible story, I don't even know what one it was. I said, Mom, I'm not saved. And my mom simply opened the scripture to John 3.16 and explained to me how I could be saved, how I could know for sure that my sins were forgiven, that I would be a child of God and go to heaven when I die. 
And I remember kneeling up on the side of my bed. I could take you to the room. I could take you to the spot on the wall where I stood or I knelt by my, on my bed, facing the wall, and where I prayed and trusted Christ as my Savior. I remember at that age, that's a very young age to get saved. And I remember crying as I was praying. I remember tears rolling down my face and as a kid just not really understanding why. Well, I know why now. It was the joy of the Lord. It was forgiveness, relief. I was his child now. Those tears would help me much later in my teenage years. I grew up in a public high school or a public school system. I never had the privilege of a Christian education. Coming up through, I would go to, you know, youth, youth uh, nights at the church and all that. would go to the, just a rare uh, youth conference as I got older. Never had a lot of privilege to do a lot of that stuff. But we did go to some, went to summer camp a few times. And it was at one summer camp when I was 16 years old that... Um, they were emphasizing the need for having personal devotions. A personal time with God each day where you read the Word of God, get something from it, spend time in prayer. And I remember going out and sitting on a stump in back of the chapel because we weren't allowed to be together, you know, how we run it at camp and all these things we do devotions. And I sat on a stump out in the woods, just, you know, maybe 100 feet from the chapel. And as I read John chapter 15, verse 16, it said, You've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. For some reason in my mind, it seemed like there were neon lights around that verse that day. What it was is God was tapping me on the shoulder, saying, Les, I want you in full-time service. I've called you. Tears were there again. In my teens, I had doubted my salvation. I was into not big trouble, but the music I was listening to was not godly. And there were some sin issues in my life that had, you know, become a problem. And I struggled with the security of my salvation. I didn't feel saved. Well, the reason I didn't feel saved, because there was sin. The fellowship with God was not right. It wasn't, the sin wasn't taken care of and I, I wasn't right with God. The Bible bears out in 1 John that if we're, there's sin in our lives, we don't feel the security of our salvation. It doesn't change the fact of our salvation, but we don't feel it. And feelings come and feelings go. They're not dependable. We don't make decisions based on feelings alone. But I didn't feel saved, and it was confusing. A wise old pastor sat down with me one Sunday morning as I walked forward because I wasn't sure I was saved, and I, I was going forward to get saved again. <laughs> and he took me aside and into the side room in our church, and he said, Les, have you ever trusted Christ your Savior? I said, well, I prayed when I was five years old. He said, well, did you get saved then? Well, I think so. And he took the Scripture and helped me understand. I didn't need to get saved again. I just needed to get right with God. And I praise the Lord for that wise old man. He was just filling in my home church that Sunday. God called me to be a preacher of the Gospel. 
as I said, when I was 16. I went on uh, to Faithway Baptist College. So I did live in the city for four years. <laughs> I lived in Ajax, went to uh, Faithway Baptist College. I am the of the old school. I graduated before you graduated high school. Uh, I graduated in 1990, and uh, that last year of, uh, of Faith, at Faithway Baptist College, my senior year, I had vowed I'm going to finish the course. I'm not going to date. I'm not going to get distracted with some girl. I'm not. I'm just going to focus and get done. That lasted two weeks. <laughs> Because this beautiful young angel from Newfoundland showed up. Amen. <laughs> and uh, she chased me till I caught her. <laughs> and uh, we uh, got engaged after our first year. You say that was quick. Yeah, but she was living in the dorm. I was living in the other section of the dorm, the way it's divided there at Faithway. We ate together. At meals, went to classes together. We had a job at the same place, so we worked together. And it was the Lord just showing us this was right. She was the one. She knew it. I knew it. That following summer we got engaged. She went back for another year. Uh, I had graduated in 1990. She went back for another full year, and we were married that in 1991. God blessed us with five children overall. Um, one, Ruth, who you know, <laughs> uh, she arrived in Canada before we left to go to Bolivia, South America, where God had called us to be missionaries. So Ruth is our only Canadian-born child. We had five total. We had Ruth and we had Nathan uh, once we got to Bolivia. He was born in Bolivia six months after we got there. Then Esther was born another year and a half, two years, two years after him. And then a year and a half, two years, two more years, okay, she's back there. <laughs> year and a half, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, then God answered our prayers and blessed us with two more children at one time. And uh, my wife had been praying and I had been praying for many years that God would allow us to adopt and if God's will that we were to adopt, our, our idea was if we were going to adopt from a different race, different ethnic background, that we wanted twins so that one would not grow up alone with a different skin color and white family and so on. And so we prayed for twins. And we also prayed for a boy and a girl twins. Now, that's specific. We came home on furlough after three years in Bolivia, came home for a year, talked to our extended family about the idea of adopting. We went back in July of 1999. First part of July, we got there by the 7th or 10th? I think it was the 7th of August, maybe the 8th night, somewhere in there. Between 7th and the 10th of August of 1999, we took custody the boy and girl twins, who were of Quechua background uh, from South America, from Bolivia, South America. And God rounded out our family, complete with five children. So now there were seven of us total. 
We served in Bolivia till the end of 2000, November of 2000. God directed us to change fields. Still missionaries, still church planters. God directed us to change fields. And I'll be honest with you, I was scratching my head. As you can see, I scratched a lot. <laughs> Why did we only end up there six years? I, I, I didn't figure I'd be there for life, but I didn't think it would only last six years. But God was directing us to something He had laid on my heart many years before that. But it wasn't time. And that was to go to the province of Newfoundland. The Newfoundland is the home of my forefathers. My mother was born and raised in Newfoundland. So all her family's from there. My dad was born in Nova Scotia, but his uh, grandparents on his mom's side came from Newfoundland. And only recently, this last summer, somebody was tracing her family tree, their family tree, and it crossed mine. The branches came together. And I found out that my great, 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 great grandfather had come from England. His name was William Harding. He came to the island of Newfoundland, specifically to the town of Buren. Lived, settled in Collins Cove, which is just around the bay from Buren. And he was a Christian. Born again man, saved in England before he came. Contact through the Methodist church there. Now back in the 1800s, they preached the gospel. The same as we do. And he came, ended up marrying a young woman, settling in Collins Cove. Was a blacksmith by trade. But as he was faithful in the church there, God touched his life to be what was called then a lay minister with the Methodist church. And he would preach when there was no pastor. He would go and uh, he would be uh, he'd go to various churches around and fill in. When the, the, the men from the coast of Newfoundland, they'd stop fishing in the wintertime and go in on the country and were fur trappers. And my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather would travel into their cabins and preach the gospel on Sunday to them. He was a faithful minister. Well, God called us to Newfoundland, and I'm trying to get move fast here, okay? But God called us to Newfoundland. We moved there in uh, December, on the end of November, 2000. We lived in St. John's for six months till we figured out where we were going to go, till the Lord directed us which time he directed us to go to Clarenville, Newfoundland. It's two hours west of St. John's, small town of 6,200 people. Uh, we, it's an economic hub for that area. So overall, we've serviced probably 25 to 30,000 people uh, that would drive in an hour and a half radius into Clarenville. We started Vista Independent Baptist Church in June of 2001. With just a handful of people, there were some Christians who lived in that area. Brother Mark, you'd know them. There was four people, plus my family. We met for two years in a small office building. A few more people come around, police officer and his family, and a few others. The police officer ended up getting transferred. But, you know, they come and they go, but the Lord was doing something. But we started to outgrow the little room. And... uh we started praying that God would give us somewhere to meet. You folks have been through that struggle in this church. 
Not a cheap place to buy or (laughs) exist in this place. I know that. But we began to pray, and we prayed for several months what the Lord would have us do. We looked at several rental properties that just weren't really conducive to setting up a church. I even looked at a a warehouse that we would just have done something with. But it wasn't feasible. Somebody said, well, what about that old abandoned church up on the hill? Okay. So we went and looked at it. I called the lady who was the caretaker. The church had been empty and and the electricity had been cut off a year or so before that. She said, you can come in. I'll show you around. So she opened the door. The second she opened the door, I heard the water gushing inside the building. It was February. It was minus eight outside, minus two inside the building. They shut off the electricity, but had not shut off the water. I went into the bathroom. I made my way through the, around the back room, which was the floors were rotten. And I made my way to the bathroom, and it was encased in ice. You ever seen the, uh, see the ice hotels in Quebec and so on? It was just like that. The toilet paper roll that was sitting on top of the toilet tank was literally that tall. It was all encased in ice, and I'm thinking, oh. Anyway, I found the shut off under the sink. I was soaked trying to get the, the water shut off and everything. We looked around the building, and it was okay. <laughs> the kitchen floor was in the basement. The, uh, that was the blessing because the bathroom was alongside of that, and the water had run down through that into the crawl space, and so it didn't affect the auditorium. So thank God for a collapsed floor. Long story short, we started praying about that building. The, stru- the main structure was still good. The floors were a bit bad, and it needed a bunch of work. But we started praying. It was owned by the uh, Atlantic Baptist Convention, and so they, the, the lady put us in touch with them, and they said, we're just thrilled that there's another Baptist church going into Clarenville. Uh, we'd like you to have the building. We'll give it to you for $15,000. Well, that was really nice. That's three-quarters of an acre of land right in the middle of town. Big church building. Needed a bunch of work, but $15,000 was a good deal. Except when you didn't have $15,000. Our people began to pray. There were 12 of us. And we prayed what God would do. We said, God, what should we do? I offered them nothing for the building. I said, well, maybe you could give it to us. There was a chuckle on the other end of the phone. And they said, we'll give you the land, but we'll have to charge you for the building. (laughs) In other words, no. (laughs) I said, would you take $5,000 for it? We didn't even have $5,000 in the account. The gentleman I was talking to had to go to the board and bring it back. So this was happening over a few hours. Call me back. We can't do 5000 We can do 10000 That was a good price, man. I'm wishing we could get it. I said, we can't do 10000 They said, well, we'll offer you an interest-free loan through the convention. Uh, sorry, that just puts us in the convention, which we're not going to do. I said, we can't. He said, I'm not authorized to do this, but I'm going to ask you this question. Could you do it for $7,500? 
I said, let me take it to the church. <laughs> Inside, I'm saying, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Let's do this. But he called back a little later. I called our people. I said, what should we do? They said, Pastor, it's time. He called back and I said, we'll do it for $7,500. He said, great. Closing date in six weeks. Let's get this done. We had $2,000 in the bank account. And our people prayed. Twelve people. Twelve people began to pray. In six weeks. Now let me, st- let me back up. In four weeks, they allowed us in the building to start renovations. Before it was even ours. You say, that's foolish. Yes, but we knew. We had the, the, the peace of God that this was the right thing to do. In six weeks, we wrote a check for $7,500 plus the appropriate transfer fees, like $8,200, $8,300, and we had 7000 more left in the account to do the renovations that we needed to get done. We went from 2000 to $15,000 in the account in six weeks. Who did that? Who did that? God did. Missions is not all roses and sunshine. Missions is hard. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change what I do for the world. You could give me a million dollars and I have all confidence that to, to walk away from it and I have all confidence that by the grace of God I could give it back to you. At least $900,000 of it, anyway. No, there's nothing that could tear me away. The ministry has been long and slow. We've been there 17 years now. We have between 15 and 20 people on the average Sunday. You say, what have you been doing for 17 years? By the grace of God, being faithful... You know, we all have heard the stories of the missionaries that went off to some foreign land and they labored for 10, 12, 20 years before they saw their first convert. Sometimes we forget that that still is a reality in our world in some places. I love Newfoundland. My roots are there. I'm Newfoundlander by heart, even partly by birth. But they're stubborn people. And I don't say that disrespectfully. The stubbornness comes from a survival mentality of living on an island in the North Atlantic where it's extremely harsh. It took a survival mentality to exist there all these decades, all these centuries. And it's ingrained in the mindset. They don't want to change. Well, I got my church. I don't need to. I was born an Anglican. I was born a Catholic. I was born united. I'm going to die that. Where will they bury me if I change religions? So they tend to be very closed. But we keep sowing the seed. We keep working. We keep laboring. God called us there. I can't get away from that. A wise pastor said to me one time, he said, it was just before I went to Bolivia, he said, Les, You're going to Bolivia. He said, are you absolutely 100% sure God has called you there? I said, yeah. You know, sort of like, duh, what do you think? Would I be going? (laughs) I didn't say that to him. I was polite. 
I said, yes. He said, are you sure? I said, yes. Almost feeling a little irritated that he would question this. He said, are you really sure? I said, yes. He said, good. Because all the romance and the wonder and the, this idea of going off and winning people to Christ and planning a church and seeing thriving ministry, it'll fade away when reality sets in and you get on the field. But the knowledge of that you know absolutely that God wants you there, that will keep you there. He was right. In 17 years, we've been in Clarenville, Newfoundland. Love our people. Really, our church is a, is a family. Very close-knit family. Our fellowship times, we used to have a fellowship once a month after ser- evening service. And, we, you know, when Rebecca and I were doing it and we put it off, you know, we, not a lot of people coming in, so Rebecca would make some sweets and make some tea and some coffee, and that would be what it was. Well, about four years ago, we started to get some more people. Things started to grow a bit. And they said, well, can we bring more than sandwiches and tea and coffee? Well, yeah, if you want to. Now it's a full-on potluck dinner. And we eat ourselves silly every once a month. All good Baptists eat, amen. All right? And uh, I've taken a lot longer. But God is good. God is faithful. I heard a testimony last evening at the uh, college uh, graduate banquet at Faithway. A young girl said in her testimony that she learned that we, we all talk about God's will like it's some big mystical thing, <laughs> that some quest in a video game that we have to go find. Well, God does have a plan for our lives. It's nothing so wonder... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? So mysterious. Because God wants us to know what He wants us to do. But one surefire way of being in God's will 20 years from now is to determine to do what God wants you to do today. And do that every day. And if every day you get up determining to do the will of God for that day, 20 years from now, you will still be right in the center of God's will. God's faithful. Guess what? The romance of church planting wore off pretty quickly. We've seen hard times. I'm not going to tell you all of them. But God's good. I have most of the support we we have most of the support we need. But I had to take a job for a while, for six years. I recently resigned from that job because my wife took her job. <laughs> But I worked in an ambulance service for six years, off and on, like uh, call on a call-in basis. And through working in emergency work like that, also as a, I, I work as a volunteer firefighter in our community, done that for ten years. I've seen a tremendous amount of stuff that I would hesitate to tell you about tonight. I've seen death. I've seen destruction. I've touched the gold, cold, dead hands of an overdose victim. It's interesting that God put me in those places. You know, I, at first I was sort of rotted in my own mind about 
having to take a job. I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be taking a secular job. I realize the Apostle Paul had to at times. Nothing wrong with it. But with what God put me into, it was a unique ministry. It wasn't just a job, it was a ministry. Time will not permit, and I'm going to be done here very soon. Time wouldn't permit for me to tell you all the times that God put people in the back of my ambulance or put me along on side of the road with an accident victim where I was able to talk to them about Christ, where I was able to spend time praying with them. It's not much. Did I win anybody to Christ in those things? No. But I got to speak a word for God. I got to show the love of Christ. I got to touch another life for the glory of God. Let me just give you one example of how miraculous that can be. One of the supervisors with our ambulance service was in a car accident in an intersection uh, near the base, actually. And that day I wasn't working on the ambulance, but I am a volunteer firefighter, so I had to go. We get on scene, and there's this lady. She's not doing too well. She's. We didn't think it was major injury. We knew she had bumped her head. And they hauled her. We got her out of the car, got her onto a stretcher. And for some weird reason, in the middle of the, one of the busiest intersections in our small community, one of four sets of traffic lights, <laughs> for about 30 seconds or 40 seconds, there was nobody around us. I was standing, kneeling beside that stretcher with my coworker. It was like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, you need to pray with this woman. I took off my helmet, which has a cross on the back of it, just for the record, to identify who I am. I laid the helmet on the ground. I took her by the hand and prayed for her. We didn't know it, but she had a head injury that caused a stroke. And she went through some very hard times. She survived. But God put me there for some reason in a busy accident scene where there were a dozen firefighters and two or, three, two or four EMS workers and police. For about 30, 40 seconds, there was nobody within 20 feet of us. Why? Because God had pushed everybody aside to allow me to pray with her. Small maybe. Did I win her to Christ? No, I wish I did. wish I could have. But we talked many other times about the Lord from that incident. You never know where God's going to take you. You never know what God's going to do with your life. And I do apologize, Brother Mark. You said 15 or 20 minutes. I've been a half hour now. <laughs> I appreciate your patience with me. But I just wanted to share with you what God can do if you just let Him do it. I read you the verses, and mainly the last two verses that I read. We're forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I put the, the past behind me, whatever it was. I don't dwell on the past mistakes. I don't dwell on the past glories. 
Praise the Lord for what they were and keep moving. We don't live in the past. We keep pressing forward for the high calling. That calling, one day we'll go to heaven where we'll stand before our Savior and we will give an account. And it'll go something like this. Les, did you obey when I called you? Yes, Lord. Did you go to Bolivia like I told you to? Yes, Lord. Did you adopt those kids the way I told you to? Yes, Lord. Did you go to Clarenville not understanding why? Yes, Lord. Did you start that church? Yes. Did you understand that it was only going to be my my grace that you stayed there? Yes. Did you trust me when you've seen such horrific scenes on the side of the Trans-Canada Highway or in town or in a house in fire and EMS? Yes, Lord. And I hope and pray as I think of that day. The choir saying, going home. I look forward to that. But more than anything else, I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It'll only be by the grace of God that I will hear that. God is faithful. God is good. The young people, I'm so encouraged with the testimonies tonight. But 50 years into this life, I can tell you with all assurance, God is good. God is faithful. He will always be there. Don't take your eyes off Him. Keep moving forward. Forget those things which are behind. Reach forward unto those things which are before. And then we go home. Thank you, Brother Lord.